Today's episode is brought to you by Choose901. They believe now is the time and Memphis is the place to invest and enjoy your life. Check out Choose901.com slash OAM and subscribe to the free Choose901 newsletter and stay up to date with all the great things going on in the 901. Stay tuned to learn more about Choose901. TheOAMnetwork.com Power to the podcast. I'm terrified about the marathon tomorrow. Um, I have done them before. Oh, well, what's the terror then? But I'm not in a position. Uh, the combination of things, not well trained enough. Oh. Got sick last week. Mm. And oh. I've got like a lingering cough. Oh. That, uh, a little phlegm getting in the way of your... I might go down. Oh. Well, you could always just walk. Wah, wah, wah. Yeah. Or cut across a median. Yeah, or, or get a bird. Or get a bird. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You're gonna have. You're gonna be the guy with the uh, nipples bleeding on his shirt. I actually. There's a tumbler of. You that. gotta get tape. You gotta get good tape for your nipples. I've got There's special some sequin nipple covers. I've got some special hexagons. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like stop signs. Welcome to Dr. Heckle, the science communication podcast that says, yeah, yeah, let's get down with the trumpets. 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 What? On today's episode, recalled medical devices, genetic counseling, and guinea pig regulations in Switzerland. Welcome to Dr. Heckle, the science communication podcast that has not been purchasing any $50 million penthouses in Moscow. With me on the show today, with a master's in marketing and information systems from Fordham University, comedian Jonathan Ziegel. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Welcome. And with a master's in clinical social work from University of Tennessee, owner of Forward Counseling, Jess Frey. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks. So, uh, Jonathan, first of all, you're a comedian from uh, New York. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about um, what brings you to Memphis and how the comedy scene is up there? Sure. Uh, well, I was uh, I was in Nashville for work earlier this week, and uh, I've been to Memphis before. I've really enjoyed it. It's a great city, and I'm traveling with my girlfriend. So I said, uh, "Let's go make a weekend of it." And then I reached out, got in touch. Uh, we got in touch, and uh, just looking forward to having a good time this weekend. Yeah, you're going to be on the uh, the Crosstown Comedy Show. Yeah, at Crosstown Brewing Company. That's right. A couple hours at seven thirty. Yeah, and uh, you you run a show up in New York, right? Right. Uh, yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure, yeah. I uh, Actually, I run a couple. Uh, the first one is uh, it's uh, twice a month over at Walter's Cottage. It's a great Irish pub in uh, Hell's Kitchen. And, um, you know, I invite my friends, different comics. We come down. We take over the place. We hijack the bar, basically. And uh, it's great staff and uh, great great regulars there. And, uh, you know, we just uh, we, we try to put on a show. You know, we try to put on a good time. Excellent. Yeah. I know that we have at least one New York listener because i do check the analytics on the on the website yeah. nice. so direct them <laughs> yeah we're on uh, 10th avenue 43 <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and you've been doing comedy for quite a while about five years you yeah. say yeah about five years and uh yeah it's uh it's been a it's been a fun ride it's been a fun uh you know it's uh it's you know it's challenging it's hard work but it is very rewarding you know what what would you say uh, you can either choose to tell me what is the worst you've ever felt doing comedy or mm. the best you've ever felt? Wow, uh, hmm. worst I've ever felt, uh, and I kind of saw it coming too. My friend asked me to host and tell jokes for a fundraiser in front of three hundred people 
that took place in a chocolate factory for <laughs> Nepalese uh, victims of the earthquake. And, okay. Uh, and, and so, boy, I was excited. And, uh, and, and what had happened was uh, the DJ was playing great dance music and people were dancing for about 40 minutes before they turned the volume down and said, coming up on stage, is the host, Jonathan. You know, and it was just a total uh, uh, disaster. You know, 15 minutes of disaster. And, uh, but and, then, and then did they turn the music back on? Right back on. Oh, right back on. That's yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, on the flip, uh, on the flip side, you know, good shows are, uh, you know, good shows are, are really, um, you know, they're really great. You know, you you connect with an audience. You 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 can just tell that they're feeling what you're saying, and 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 you're sharing energy, and uh, you know, uh, you know, you give them something to think about on their way home. You know, they're. They're in the bathroom a couple hours later, and they're going, "Oh, that line was so funny. That's that's my line, you know. Those little takeaway quotes. They're they're really great, you know." Yeah. Um, so I, so that gives you a good link into our other guest, Jess Frey. So connecting with people is something obviously that counseling uh, it, it's very much required. Can you tell us a little bit about um, forward counseling and uh, you know? Yes, absolutely. I started forward counseling in 2012. I started at my house. And my goal was to provide the kind of counseling that I needed as a teenager, which is open-minded, non-shamey, accepting, validating, respectful. Um, and so I built my company based on those values of, of courage, bravery, respect, um, kindness, compassion. And over the last six years, we've grown 100% a year. Our staff is a total of 28 now. Oh, wow. Yes. And so we currently serve about 900 Memphians at a time. So it's it's wonderful. It's wonderful. I get to see healing every day. That's great. And it keeps me motivated. That's great. And it, it covers a whole range of things, not just, you know. Any, um, we cover a lot of mental health diagnoses that are on Axis 1. So things like depression, anxiety, PTSD, um, substance abuse, things like that. Things that can, things that are resolvable. Um, usually, the things we treat are curable. People may not understand that, but depression's curable. Um, Anxiety is resolvable. I don't know if it's curable, but it's resolvable. And PTSD from trauma is curable, I believe. Um, alcoholism is curable. So we we try to help people be their best self. Yeah, and often um, you know, uh, versus uh, chemical interventions, counseling interventions often are seen to have equal to or sometimes greater benefits yes. or can be used in supplement. Absolutely. Um, so the way I'm going to link this into science is there is a field of genetic counseling that, uh, that exists, which you may be, you know, you, you may be aware of that is, uh, has its origins in uh, 1955, but uh, is, be- is becoming far more um, prevalent. Hmm. Uh, there are now 41 uh, places that are accredited for you to become a genetic counselor in the United States. So, um, the, it can be for, you know, uh, for many different things. If you are someone who is a carrier or sufferer from a disease mm-hmm. and you want to, uh, you want to start a family, uh, you might know, not know the ins and outs of that genetic disease in a way that a genetic counselor will be able to tell you, is it advisable to conceive naturally? Could you, you know, benefit from going through an IVF and selection therapy or is it, uh, is it such a disease that it is not uh, not sensible to go forward with any you know, any kind of pregnancy? Mm. Uh, there's also uh, similar support services that um, 
help people deal with the long-term impacts, you know, of, of diseases and, you know, uh, are experts in the, in the outcomes of those disease diseases to try and figure out like how to navigate someone through that process. So it all started in 1955 uh, with this guy, John Pearson from Rochester State Hospital, who published an article called An Educational Approach to the Social Problem in Huntington's Career. Uh, so Huntington's Disease. Um, and basically, uh, today, you know, a good example would be if you were to have those CAG uh, nucleotide repeats that give you Hunting Huntington's disease, you have a 50% chance in passing that on. So it would uh, not be a good idea to conceive naturally. However, you can test for it during IVF therapy. So you can go ahead and uh, conduct in vitro fertilization, choose the embryos that do not have the, uh, the aberration and go ahead with the pregnancy. So um, genetic counseling oh, is going to be a part of the future world of counseling. Interesting. Anything funny to say about that, John? <laughs> wow. No, that's, Sorry. Uh, that is interesting. Uh, it's interesting you call it the future. Is, is it, uh, so, f but since 1955, they've just been parsing the good from bad genes. And, um, so, so basically, the, the, yeah, the concept started in 1955 because uh, the, the guy was ba uh, basically saying, you know, uh, Huntington's career is a disease where um, you don't know that you've got it usually until... 35 to 45 chances are you've already had a child by right. that point so then that child would have had a 50 percent chance of having huntington's disease you would have never you didn't know you had this disease and therefore should think about whether you want to you know chance having a child with that disease right. whereas uh, now our knowledge of genetics is so much better that you can and our technology is so much better that you can not only know if you have the disease or not but then also make a choice that will prevent that being passed on to the next generation. Uh, yeah, nothing funny yet, but uh, more questions. Okay, <laughs> so no, that's that's fine. So can you uh, can, so can you uh, get earlier detection if, let's say, you're 25 and you're interested in having a child? Could you then find out at that point? Are there tests being you, run there? You can, can uh, you can now know from birth basically if you have uh, this CAG repeat yeah, okay. that uh, that would lead to you developing it at yeah. the age. I mean, I guess it takes 30s. the guesswork out of it. You know, I guess, uh, you know, maybe you say, I don't want to know if it's a boy or a girl, but I'd like to know. Does it have hunting? <laughs> <disease?"> <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah. No. Uh, um, and there's a number of things that are screened for in typical IVF procedures mm -hmm. now, yeah. um, which, you know, you could make some argument is that, uh, you know, some kind of eugenics or. Yeah, of course. I mean, you know, you know, what kind of race are we looking to build? You know what I mean? I think that's, <laughs> I think that's, I think that's the question uh, we're trying to answer. That's know? a good question. Yeah, that's true. What is the ideal? Well, you, okay, professor, you, what, what is the ideal race? Well, I don't think there is an ideal race. I think the ideal race is diverse. So, you know, this is a little concerning because there's things that at different time periods have been seen as a handicap where now we know that their strengths that come with that. Mm -hmm. And I don't know enough about this hunting Huntington's. So, so basically uh, the age of between 35 and 45, you have an, uh, an onset and over the next 20 years, it's basically a combination. It's a brain degeneration that gives you symptoms with, that are analogous to, you know, Alzheimer's and Parkinson's disease. You okay. have loss of motor control, loss of, you know, uh, it is probably one of the most uh, debilitating and severe disorders uh, and you live for quite a long time with it. 
having completely lost all sense of self and per, you know personality it's it's like a truly devastating disorder that um that no one would have any qualms of you not bringing a child into that world who is going to suffer from it the question becomes uh more of an issue of of where you draw the line on uh things that are of less serious nature yeah yes i agree with you yeah let Ohm help you get the word out on your service, product, or endeavor. Email info at theoamnetwork.com. Today's episode is brought to you by Choose 901. Now is the time, Memphis is the place. Choose 901 is a movement of passionate Memphians who want to invest and enjoy their lives in the Bluff City. These are the people who know and believe that Memphis isn't becoming a good city, but already is a great city. A real city with problems that need to be solved. A growing city with opportunities to be seized. A fun city with so much to enjoy. If you're new to Memphis or just want to become more involved with the Memphis community, Choose901.com is the perfect place to get connected. Check out their Jobs of the Week section, list of local volunteer programs, internships, and residencies. Experience the city through the eyes of new Memphians with Year One and so much more. Go to choose901.com slash OAM today and subscribe to the free Choose 901 newsletter. Choose901.com. Now is the time. Memphis is the place. The OAMnetwork.com. All original podcasts released weekly in Memphis, Tennessee. Welcome back to Dr. Heckle. We move on to our news item of the week. Today's article is actually a press release from the pharmaceutical company Bayer. And it says, Bayer to voluntarily discontinue U.S. sales of Esure, E-S-S-U-R-E, at the end of 2018 for business reasons. The safety and efficacy of Esure have not changed. So off the title alone, what do you think is going on there? They're no longer selling a certain drug. A certain product, yeah. And they said for business reasons. Yeah, I mean, I would think uh, they got through clinical trials and they said, all right, this is good efficacy. This is sufficient safety. It's better than standards of care as they exist. And they're going, wait a second. We didn't realize people were growing third arms. We should take another look at this. And they're going, maybe it's not a good idea. I mean, the third arm has great utility, but maybe we should take another look at this and probably choosing to discontinue. Interesting. Yeah. So uh, the you've, I think you've half got it there. Uh, <laughs> third leg. Escher is a, so it's a form of contraceptive implant. Uh, it's not, not like the type you, uh, that goes in your arm. It is uh, an implant that blocks the fallopian tubes. Yes, uh, I've heard of this. Yes, I've heard of this one. And it's a it's a four centimeter implant that is, is this coil that um, yeah it looks like a spring it looks, goes in your ovary yeah no, it goes in your tube right fallopian tube. yes goes into the fallopian yeah. tubes and scar tissue builds up around them mm-hmm. and blocks eggs from reaching the womb so it's a permanent uh, non uh, it's a permanent contraceptive that is I guess less invasive in theory than a hysterectomy or you know, uh, any other kind of uh, sterilization. So it was marketed as a non-surgical alternative because you can, in theory, insert them in like, I think it's a 15-minute procedure. Uh, However, uh, analysis of health records by investigative journalists showed that large numbers of women in the US, Australia, and the UK have suffered complications such as persistent bleeding, chronic pain, allergic reactions. Uh, Women in Australia are... uh, filing a lawsuit claiming there's nickel poisoning. 
and thousands of women have undergone surgeries uh, that have resulted in full hysterectomies uh, in trying to remove these devices. So the FDA analysis reveals that uh, there have been 26,773 adverse incidents in the US and 10,000 removals of that device uh, and a number of removals in obviously other European countries. So uh, is it business reasons that it's being, uh, being removed? I mean, I guess it's technically business reasons if your product is causing it's, huge amounts of harm. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like a third of all uh, women undergoing this procedure are, are, not, uh, are not getting the result they were looking to get. So I, that's a pretty, I mean, that's good in baseball, but that's pretty bad in pharmaceutical. Yeah. So, oh, so no, so it was, it was, yeah, 26,000 adverse incidents, 10,000 oh, removals. Yeah. Uh, many, many people received, uh, they didn't actually, I haven't seen the numbers of how many people over the course of the past, since it came on the market, I think in it was either two, 2001, 2002, so it was a long time ago that it came on the market. Uh, so it could have been given to it's still, it's still a large number. It's that's still a big number, you know. It's far too it's far too many considering the safer safer alternatives. Yeah, yeah. Did they have was was any of the uh, side effect children? <laughs> <laughs> it's a fair question, right? I mean, bleeding and intestinal, you know, nickel poisoning. What about the children? Were the, were the so, so I mean, children I, had. I I wonder if there's a greater chance of ectopic pregnancy, which would be disastrous. Uh, that's something that you know, can result in, in death um, because that would be when a pregnancy takes in the fallopian tube doesn't uh, progress into the uterus, which, you know, might have a greater chance of happen happening if you've blocked it. Mm -hmm. Right. <laughs> what, what, what do you think, Jess? What do you, have um, you, you've, you've heard about this situation yes. then? Yes, I've heard about this product and the uh, claims against it. Um, Yes. And I think, does this device fall, does this um, thing fall under a medical device? Yes. So that's the tricky part because medical devices aren't as regulated from what I understand as pharmaceuticals, right? Jess, you have won my heart. This is, this is exactly what you, what uh, the yeah. issue is. Yeah. And so this was a product that was allowed to become on the market without really clinical trials, right? Mm -hmm. Because a, a drug would have had a clinical trial, but because this is a medical device, they didn't require the trials. They just had to prove that a previous device had worked or something that was similar. And it's, it's very bizarre that there's such a lack of oversight in these devices that are allowed to be implanted in our body. But this is a perfect example of um, why we need a lot more uh, scrutiny of medical devices. Exactly. Summed it up perfectly. Wouldn't you say, John? I agree. I agree 100%. Uh, so, so this was... Uh, Part of uh, a lot of the information I gathered for this was from the Guardian's reporting on the medical device uh, industry. And this, this device is one particular example, but you're right for the whole of the medical device industry. Uh, there is far too little regulation uh, and you, you don't have to show uh, efficacy in the same way you would for a drug. Um, now, one of the one of the uh, one of the things about, you know, we need greater scrutiny in Australia and Europe, there appears to be an effort to tighten up uh, regulations specifically after this and a number of other, you know, incidences. This is not the only one where a medical device has had adverse uh, outcomes. Yeah, vaginal mesh. Exactly. 
unfortunately, <laughs> unfortunately, those adverts you hear yeah. on uh, on the radio. Well, I mean, they're marketing it as vaginal mesh. I mean, that doesn't really sound foolproof now, <laughs> right. now does it? <laughs> it? Sounds like it might be a mess. Right. It's like they filter out maybe the, you know, maybe the bad genes. Maybe they filter out the, uh, you know, the uh, the Huntington's genes. But, you know, is that, is that, is that <laughs> really like like the right kind of like Hawthorne filter there? You know, is that that? <laughs> um, but guess what the U.S. is doing or pushing towards? Oh, no mm. telling. Mm. Whatever um, makes money. Lobbyists. So I'm so, so I'm saying Australia and Europe. There appears to be an effort to tighten the regulations. Mm. The proposal in the US is, of course, to have way. no regulations. To loosen the regulations yes. and make wider it mesh easier yeah. for <laughs> more mesh. <laughs> we want more mesh. <laughs> <laughs> to make it easier for manufacturers to get their devices to market more quickly. Oh yikes! That's surprising. Yeah, that is. <laughs> I don't know. Look at our gun laws. <laughs> Yeah, so not shocking, uh, not shocking. So really, for you know, Bayer voluntarily dis, uh, discontinued the U.S. sales. They were forced to uh, discontinue the European sales and voluntarily discontinued the U.S. sales afterwards because the writing was on the wall. Right. But they did. They did try to fight it initially uh, when, when you know when reports were, were originally coming out and claiming that you know the numbers of people who. Uh, reported these problems there was disc- you know saying there was discrepancies etc cetera, etc cetera, you know he- hemming and whoring blind the victim mm. yeah i was curious if they if they didn't try to take some of that time and just uh, conduct studies to see if you know it was concomitant if it was uh, women in combination with other uh you know with other sort of uh, uh, you know medications or things like that that would have triggered uh, failure in this uh, you know in this uh, therapy yeah, well, uh, one of the things I think uh, I think is also that it can take a long time for the problems to arise. You know, right. a number of years after implantation, and then when you come in and say you've got pains or bleeding or whatever from, from the doctor, maybe that doctor isn't going to think, "Oh, it's going to be due to this this thing," right? You know, but there was inserted four, four five, ten years ago. Um, yeah, because some of the symptoms, from what I understand, from implants can come up as like autoimmune type issues and so it's very confusing to figure out the actual source um and and so the patient may be misdiagnosed with like lupus or some kind of autoimmune disease when really it's a reaction to whatever was implanted into their body yeah i think it's really tricky to to pinpoint yes this device has led to all this yeah no i mean um autoimmune diseases are notoriously tricky to uh, Mm -hmm. to pin down uh, to pin down their source. Uh, so basically, uh, whilst Bayer is not the only one uh, to have, you know, uh, to have caused a problem in this space, to uh, say that it was a it was discontinuing sales voluntarily kind of hides the fact that mm-hmm. this was a uh, this was a product that was uh, not efficacious, not safe. That, they, that was continued to be on the market for uh, far too long. And for that reason, this week, we dub Bayer Pharmaceuticals fake news. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Yes. Help us keep the lights on. Go to the oamnetwork.com slash donate. Welcome back to our final section where we take a journal article from the scientific literature, explain it to our guests, have them digest all that tasty information and explain it back to me today's article comes from the journal science advances 
from the Department of Earth System Science at Stanford University. The first author is Ali Sahadi, and the anchor author is Noah Diffenbaugh. And the title of the article is Multidimensional Risk in a Non-Stationary Climate, Joint Probability of Increasing Severe Warm and Dry Conditions. Now, from the title alone, what can you digest of what this journal article is going to be about? All I could think of was bipolar disorder. Ranges of things, high and low. High and low. John, what have you got? Mm. I can say it again. Yeah, please. Yeah. Multidimensional risk in a non-stationary climate, joint probability of increasingly severe warm and dry conditions. I, I'm thinking like seasonal mood disorder, but like <laughs> to the of extreme. The, of the environment? <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> is this about global warming? Like polar ice caps yeah, it's like a, melting and, and people getting bummed out about it. It is about global warming. Yes. <laughs> we have our third depressing topic of the evening. Yes, yeah, trifecta. Uh, so, um, this article, so most mo- most modeling of future heat waves and droughts and extreme events uh, to do with global warming that are modeled by all these different groups, they're usually modeling one thing at one time. Uh, so uh, this is this is a group trying to model two things at one time, which, you know, you're only modeling two things, but it's actually still can be incredibly difficult. Uh, and they actually did a lot of complex statistical analysis. So before we so before we start, let's let's lay out some groundwork. Uh, Jonathan, global warming uh, is happening yeah. that so that's the that's the groundwork really <laughs> it's happening uh, society society thanks for telling me thanks for um, eye contact and yeah so uh w- society needs to be prepared for this and, and aim for a way to stop it happening but part of that preparation comes in being able to model you know what is happening where it's going to happen uh so um I want to know, how does global warming concern you on a day-to-day level, Jonathan, Yeah. before we start? Yeah, honestly, um, uh, it's, uh, it is a serious topic. You know, I think just even following um, what's happened around the globe in the last uh, couple of decades, just seeing the frequency of incidences, um, you know, I, I think it's something that's, uh, you know, I don't want to say it's too late, but it's something that needs to be addressed. Everyone needs to, needs to uh, you know, play a part in uh, slowing down the progression and what, what part are you playing? <laughs> what am I playing specifically? Yeah, specifically you. <laughs> well, I try, I try to be conscious of some decisions I make. <laughs> I, 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 uh, there's, I, there's more I could be doing. But, put, it, uh, put it in the green bin. Yeah, put the, that's put right. the cans yeah, separate, in the green bin. Yeah, of course I separate, you know. <laughs> and Jess? Yes. What, uh, what do you think society needs to do before we jump into this article to be prepared for global warming? I try to avoid uh, listening to news about this because it's, it's just very stressful. So, so, so this is going to be a stressful article. Yes, yeah. I find it stressful to think about this idea because when you some of the articles are very doom and gloom and like dun dun dun, you're we're going to all die, and that just shuts me down totally. So I can't go forward in reading whatever is being published. So I, I really avoid this whole topic. It. Some people, but the the news is so bipolar. Like some people are terrified of it. It's definitely happening, and we're going to die, and our children are going to suffer. And then there's other people that are like, "Meh, it's fake news. It's not. It's 
you know, so I don't know. I just avoid the whole topic. You know, and a lot of the world opinion leaders are saying, you know, look, in 20 years, we're going to have severe issues on this yeah, planet. Yeah, we're not going to have water. Yeah. There's not going to be water. Yeah. Invest in water. Or the earth is going to be breaking apart. And, yeah. and, you know, whole states and whatnot are going to just be underwater or, 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 you know, God knows what. And then you have other people like, in 20 years, come on, man. It's going to be hundreds of years from now. It's like, I, you know, that opinion I don't like. I don't like that opinion. I don't, I don't, I feel like if you're not yeah, concerned enough, you're not going to be making just, you know, just bad arithmetic, isn't right. it? 20 years is going to be hundreds of years from now. Right. <laughs> exactly. You know? Um, so hopefully I can address your, use a data driven approach okay. to make you not only feel, not feel just concerned, but maybe think, oh, there is a glimmer of hope if we act right. Okay. Convince me. So, um, so this group, as I said, they were looking at two uh, conditions, two things happening simultaneously, uh, dry and hot conditions. So they're uh, looking at the probability, first of all, to, to begin this analysis, that a given year is warmer than the 1960 to 1990 average and whether it's drier compared to that average. So the probability of a warm year increase, uh, a given year, uh, increased from 50%, which is the baseline you'd expect half the years being hotter than the average, uh, in the end of the 20th century to 80% in the, in the current, you know, in our 21st century, each year has an 80% chance of being hotter than the 1960 to 1990 average. You feel more relaxed now? You feel more... <laughs> Did that yes. work? Well, yes and no, because I don't know if we've been recording temperature for long enough to actually know if this is a trend or not. Uh, the farmer's almanac. We, we, yeah, we, right. we like, can. We can, for sure? Yeah, yeah. We, we know it's getting hotter. Sorry. Okay, okay. Uh, the probability of a dry year, though, remained at 50%. So there you go. It's okay. not getting drier. It's exactly the same same amount of precipitation. Huh. Um, so that's interesting. So it's it's drier it's drier uh, you know over the trend, which implies that they're still. So it's it's hotter. Yeah. Uh, the, but, dr- but, yeah. but dryness has stayed the same. Yes. It's hotter, but dryness. Is isn't there something? Isn't there something cyclical in the farmer's almanac that suggests heat and cold kind of alternate over you know periods of time? Uh, I'm sure. I'm sure there is something. Uh, something along those lines. Yeah, yeah, okay. And then, um, yeah. And, and we're talking dryness and humidity, right? Yeah. And, and that kind of has, is remains stable. Remains stable over the data period they're looking at. Mm-hmm. You know, they're only, mm-hmm. they're only taking data from, you know, 1960 yeah. onwards here. Okay. Um, so the probability that, you know, overall a year is both warm and dry, the conditions that might, you know, lead to a kind of uh, bad crop yield, uh, the baseline year is the baseline amount is around 20%. So that probability is now around 40% because you've got 80% um, chance of a warmer year and the same amount of chance of a uh, drier year than average. Uh, so on a regional level, uh, the, there are um, the largest increases in the warm, dry probabilities are those regions that have the largest average increase in warming. So the, you know, the areas of the world that have shown the largest individual rise in temperature are those that have the highest chance on a given year of being both warm and warmer and dry. 
dryer. So that's very that's that's simple. That's nothing. Yes. Nothing too much to worry about. So then uh, they we they started doing their multivariate analysis and pairing up different regions. So they selected twelve regions across the world, um, and were looking for if there were that creates forty two pairs basically. You you know if you, with of your twelve regions, and of each pair they were looking to see uh, what the probability of an area being both warm and dry, drier than average was. And so uh, they found that the probability uh, of a year being drier than usual and temperature in those pair of regions being more than two standard deviations above the baseline variability uh, has increased from 5% when you look at 1931 to 1950 data to 10% 1961 to 1980 data and to 31% looking at data from uh, 1996 to 2015. So there's been an increase in if you just take two given regions of the world, it being hotter, drier, uh, by more than two standard deviations. So they're either suggesting there's a correlation or it's a, uh, it's a, it's a coincidence in a, in a minority. So yeah, they're basically drawing a. They're, they're basically uh, showing the percentage chance of hot dry mm-hmm. in two given places at one time. Right. Yeah, when you pair them together, uh, and so then they wanted to look at you know some ex- some extremes, uh, and so they did that two standard deviation analysis, and then we're looking at uh, you know it being one standard deviation drier than baseline, which is more unusual and they found that that increased from less than one percent in all regions up to 1980 to uh greater than one percent in 42 percent of of the region pairs so you've got your 42 pairs there's a greater than one percent chance in uh 40 in 42 percent of those uh that <laughs> a lot of math Basically, there's a greater chance that it's hotter. It's going to be hot and dry simultaneously in these in these different places. Yeah, but the but the question is, what's the name of the scientist <laughs> that wrote this article? The name of the scientist that wrote this article, Ali Sahadi. Oh well, an anchor th- author. Th- thank you for your contribution, Noah, Noah Diffenbaugh. Um, <laughs> so to get even more extreme, and the thing is, we're just talking in standard deviations. You've got no. You've got no. Uh, Kind of, I guess, from this article, uh, idea of what that what that means temperature wise. I can't say to you that means it's going to be sixty degrees Celsius in this place. Yeah. Uh, but they're saying the probability of uh, the temperature exceeding four standard deviations above this baseline. So basically, a huge extreme uh, is above one percent for twelve of the region pairs. So saying that that temperature variation, which is, is, is very, very worrying because that, you know, that gives you a greater probability of extreme heat in a given agricultural area uh, that has already, you know, it's on, on the dramatic increase. And throughout history, it is famine that has caused significant downfalls in, you know, population. So do you want to... Is there a question? <laughs> do you want to... Do you want to get even more depressed? Uh, yeah. 
they, they modeled uh, 2020 to 2050 based on current greenhouse gas emissions and then also compared it to a lower rate of what the Paris Climate Agreement attempts to achieve. So um, in the current model, the amount by which the temperature in a given region pair is four standard deviations higher, which you know was greater than 1% in 12 of those scenarios, 12 of those region pairs, uh, it now jumps up around by around 30 points on average. So about, about 30 percentage points on average for 90% of those pairs. So you've now, you've now got an insane chance of getting too hot, too dry compared to this 1960 average. Uh, I, and the, the bit of good news that I'm going to help, uh, hope, uh, we're, we're going to end the, on a, on a good, on a good note, on an up note. If, if the emissions are, uh, and warming based on the Paris climate agreement is it adhered to, uh, this 1.5 degree increase over the, uh, the century, uh, it's still going to dramatically increase. I'm sorry. Uh, but, but the probability of a greater region, of a given region pair having greater than four standard deviations from its temperature, uh, it would be 20% less, uh, than, um, the current, uh, projections in at least 83% in 83% of those region pairs and at least 50% less than the uh, 50% less than the current projections in 30 in a third of those regions so if paris climate agreement goals are adhered to uh, there is definitely a chance that you can make a significant difference in the in the slowdown, reduce the risk of of drought and uh, aridity, and reduce the risk of food shortages. So, if if provided that no one pulls out of the Paris Climate Agreement, then I think we're going to be okay. Is basically oh, the take home from this. Yeah. Yeah. Um, is there any is there any pie? Is there any pie? Any pie? Yeah, is there any pie? Yeah, I just, I, you know, I just feel like... In uh, these analysis? In the, <laughs> no, like in the room. In, like the, in I the room? Can, I can eat to comfort me. <laughs> yeah, I, I am sorry this has been a, a particularly heavy... Uh, we'll get a beer later. Heavy. Sounds good. Uh, I know we're doomed. Paper. Right. They're trying to kill us with medical implants. The, we're dying of heat. Right. They can't kill we you from the inside. Drink. They'll kill yeah. you from the outside. Yeah. Right. There's no water. We're hot, yeah, and we're, we're gonna poisoned by medical devices. <laughs> it's terrible. That's, but we have, and, and, and the percent. bees are all dying. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we're doomed. So now, but what? what uh, Aren't the bees saving lives in uh, Bezos and his uh, shuttle building? They're using bees to like build know. these like polymers. They're just reading about it to like adhere the rocket so they could be reusable well if bezos is using the bees that's probably what happened to the rest of the bees bees in the jeff, u.s right yeah. jeff bezos jeff bezos yeah. is using the bees he stole yeah. all our bees bezos. <laughs> Bee. <laughs> uh so uh it's not his real name by the way it's not <laughs> that's name. a snake name that's a he changed name. it to that yeah. wanted to be king of the bees <laughs> <laughs> uh so whilst I may have de- uh, may have depressed you with that uh, that information, it is incumbent upon you for the good of this show mm. to be able to tell me what it is I just uh, revealed to you in information form. So between the pair of you, do you think you can come up with an explanation? I think so. Yeah. We've had a lot of education. We'll put our heads together. 
I think we can handle this. Let, uh, you know, to me, it sounds like, uh, you know, uh, sh- shit's getting real. Real shit's ba- getting real hot. Real bad out there. Real hot and dry. Real hot. And, and uh, you know, it's not going to get any better anytime soon. We better cut back on our mall bangs. But, but if we eat less, we might not notice the difference in available food and resources to ourselves. So there can be a movement that, you know, people will start to uh, walk more, run more, you know, uh, live more sustainable lives, eat less. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, That's kind of what I heard. Yeah. Wasn't, you know, was that your takeaway? Yes. My takeaway was that if we don't agree with Paris, we're all doomed. Yeah. Agree with the Parisians. Agree. Yes. But if we do, then only half of us are doomed. Right. Yeah, it's it's pretty half much half of our regions are fucked anyway. It's though pretty much a doom semi doom scenario yeah. here yeah. that we're dealing with. But we can slow the doom and reduce the doom if we follow the agreement. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and I think that's yeah. what you know we should all aim for: just slow down the doom. Yeah, I like how simple yeah. all that math was. It's really digestible for the everyday person. <laughs> what? <laughs> to say, here are the contributions I can make in one of yeah. forty-two regions that. Yeah. That may be where I live, you know? I think we'll, um, we'll, we'll want, let's, let's. Are there uh, any practical suggestions for just an everyday American? Like, how can we be a part of this Paris agreement? Um, eat more honey. <laughs> <laughs> Jeff Bezos has all the honey. I, I, I mean, beyond what you've already heard, not much really. Oh, okay. So we'll just I mean, keep on keeping So we're on. doing great. We'll just keep doing what we're doing. We've got our recycle bins. We'll work out. Yeah, uh, I think just gotta make it twenty years. That's it. Just twenty, yeah, twenty more just, years. <laughs> <laughs> more make sure we play. get our kids gen- get ourselves genetically tested so <laughs> that, yeah. I think push oh, maybe, or not, or not, or not. Because if they if we clean them up and then they live a long life, long, healthy, productive, right? Life, then the planet's fucked. Not oh, good for them. so to pull, make it full circle, shorter lifespans. What? Yeah. Isn't this the first year that, that the lifespan has been reduced this year? It is the third straight year that it has happened. And that has not happened in, uh, I think, the, a country, or in the U.S. at least, since 1915. Oh, wow. And, the, and, the, and they suggest there's two causes for it, one of which is the role that the pharmaceutical companies are playing in... Addiction? In addiction. Yeah, in addiction and... Uh, uh, well, suicide's up 20% a year or something, something ridiculous. So, uh, I mean, I guess in some way, America is America's greatest contribution, having pulled out of the Paris Climate Agreement, is to just go into self-destruct mode because no more America, <laughs> no more pollution. So... Oh, wait, what, I thought, are we the ones doing it? It's, it's, it's it, yeah. That's China. Uh, it's China, China as well. China, 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 China yeah. is not the only yeah, ones. Bit, yeah. Not yeah. the only ones. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, they had the one-child policy. America might have total self-destruction. <laughs> we have Montana, though. We have we'll, we'll, we'll all that space. That, yeah, it's fine. A, We're good for space. a little while. <laughs> okay. I'm so into the rainforest. <laughs> going to Costa Rica. So I'm okay that you, uh, you know, you you dodged the the explanation. I think I used the I uh, used the word too, standard deviation too many times in the explanation. Certainly, outside so I it. I have failed in my science communication today. But I will allow you a chance to excel in fact communication, as I of course ask each of my guests to bring a fact with them to round out the show. 
Yes, I have a super awesome random science fact. Um, there is this amazing intervention that's a cure for alcoholism that has been used in the Western Hemisphere since the 90s, mostly in European countries, and it's called the Sinclair Method, and it's 80% effective in curing alcoholism, where rehab and treatment centers have uh, typically a 15 to 20% effectiveness. So, so what is the Sinclair Method? The, Sin the Sinclair Method is using um, a medication that is a dopamine blocker. You take the medication prior to drinking, and in three to four months, it deconditions your brain to be addicted to alcohol by huh. blocking the dopamine response to alcohol. Oh, that's... It's been successfully used in European countries. It's clinically tested. It's And is it 80%. available in America? It's or? available in America. Not a lot of doctors know about it. We offer it at my practice, but the medication is available uh, at most pharmacies for around 5 to $10. It's a generic medication. Oh, it's safe. It's not habit-forming. It's not an opiate. It's not a benzo. It's, it's a medication that blocks your brain's dopa dopamine release when you do anything that you're addicted to. Wow. Yeah, it's incredible. And so, people don't know about it. So uh, do you, are you collecting data on how effective it is with your uh, the, the, the patients going through your clinic? I, I'm not because I feel like the research has already been done. Um, we use it at my clinic, effect, and it's been effective, mm -hmm. but we don't collect data, data mm -hmm. on it. I think that's already been done. There's a, a, a foundation out of, it might be out of Britain. It's called the uh, 3C Foundation that uh, does a lot of the research and holds all the information about this method. So we just we just use it and it works. It's incredible. Great. And uh, Jonathan, do you have anything to match that fact? Uh, not exactly. Not exactly. But I did bring a, a really solid fact here. Um, in Switzerland, uh, not a lot of people know this, but it is illegal to own just one guinea pig. <laughs> they might get is it, lonely. Is it because they get lonely? <laughs> I think so, yeah. yeah. It's, it's inhumane, and so it's none or several. None or yeah. several. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Switzerland like, seems like a country I could live in. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. 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 Rational laws. Mm -hmm. That's right. <laughs> think about everything. Yeah, well, you know, there's just not enough consideration to treatment of animals, uh, especially not in this country. But uh, I think uh, the Swiss are kind of, uh, of, you know, taking a very modern, very smart step through their uh, legal system. Yeah. Uh, they're serving as an example to uh, many other countries. <laughs> I, I, was, I, I was there last month, actually, and it is the cleanest place I've ever been. Really? Oh, I'm going to get to Norway soon, and I've heard that Norway can be really clean and beautiful in areas too, but Switzerland is just beautiful and clean. Awesome. Yeah. Anyway, uh, on that note, it, it is the end of the show. Thank you so much for coming and guesting. Um, Thanks for having us. Yeah, we appreciate it. One thing I, I do before the, uh, I let my guests go is I allow them to plug whatever it is that they've got going on. So, uh, Jess, first of all, um, if you would like to plug anything. Yes, if, you need, if you're in need counseling, if you're in need, in need of help with relationships or substance use, well, just alcohol, um, or mental health issues, look us up on the web. It's Ford Counseling, www.fordcounseling.com, and give us a look, see if we can help you. Great. And uh, Jonathan, where can we find you on social yeah, media? Great. What you got to plug? Listen, if you're in need of some laughs or some alcohol, uh, <laughs> look me up. Uh, come find me. I'm in New York City. Um, look me up there. And uh, Or if you're out of the city area and 
are looking for a comic to come and uh, participate in a show, please find me. Uh, Instagram, the real Jay-Z, and with the underscores after every word, so the underscore real underscore and then the initials Jay-Z. Uh, that is short for my initial. We'll link to it in the show notes. Yeah, <laughs> perfect. Great. And uh, yeah, and it was a real pleasure. Thanks for thanks for having me. Great. Yeah, no, thanks to you both. That is that is it for today. Good, good Thank n- you. Good night. Dr. Heckle is an OAM Network production, available on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, and theoamnetwork.com. Recorded at the Crosstown Concourse in Memphis, Tennessee. Your host was Mark Brimble. Guests were Jess Frey and Jonathan Ziegel. Music by Kip Yulhorn. The show is produced by Mark Brimble, Hunter Sandlin, and Gil Worth. Special thanks to Lauren Riggins and the Surf Memphis Podcast. Find us on our Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. If you have any questions, comments, or would like to get in touch about appearing on the show, or topics you'd like us to cover, email us at drhecklepod at gmail.com. TheOAMNetwork.com Power to the podcast.